0: Well, good morning, uh, welcome. Hope you had a great week. Hope you're gearing up for another good week. Welcome to those joining us upstairs at the O-1 at Crossroads in Highland Park. So we're kicking off this new series called "What If." It's a question. Several months ago, I sent out a list of questions. I send out a little Friday email that has book recommendations and quotes and prayers and prayer requests and other things. I've I've been told by my family that I am not cool enough to tweet, so I don't tweet, but I sort of store all those ideas up, and I send out an email on Fridays. And so on this particular Friday, I sent out a list of questions, and I said, these are not the ultimate questions. There are ultimate questions that we are supposed to be wrestling with, that we all have answers to, whether the answers are any good or not, whether the answers are consistent or not, is, is part of the reason why we ought to look at these questions. And these are the questions that have always been the questions. What ultimately matters? Like, who is God or what is it that really ultimately matters? And who am I? And where did I come from? And what's expected of me? And what happens to me when I die? And how do I know these things? How do I get answers to these things? These are the ultimate questions. They form our worldview. They shape our world. They shape our life. So the questions I sent out were not the ultimate questions. But these are the questions I said. These, these questions, I think, are the questions that are going to shape the next 10 years for us. For instance, I said, will we as Americans reach a, a, a point of what I'll call principled pluralism? Can we agree to disagree? Right now, it looks like uh, it's a winner-take-all cultural battle. The left is moving further to the left. The right is moving further to the right. Can the center hold? Can we hold this thing together? Second question is, will moderate Muslims be able to sort of curtail radical Muslims? And if not then how do we avoid the clash of civilizations that uh, Samuel Huntington wrote about a few years ago? Another big question is, what, what happens to the church in the next 10 years? So my entire life, the mainline church in the United States has been getting smaller The evangelical church sort of started to find a little bit of a renewal in the 80s and 90s. It's flattened out a little bit. But the church around the world, the church in Africa, Asia, Latin America is exploding. It's growing like a brush fire. And so the question becomes, what will the American church look like as we increasingly have a global church where leadership in the church is increasingly from the global south and the global east? How does that shape things? Who does God raise up? I had, I had other questions. I had questions about the weather. I had questions about debt. Like, how are local and state and, and national, international entities going to deal with increasing debt loads? It, to make it a little bit more personal, how is Illinois going to navigate its, its uh, unfunded pension challenges. So there's a whole bunch of questions that I listed, and I sent them out, and people wrote back and said, you missed this question or that question. Okay, fine. As I got thinking and working on this series, I thought, there is another big question here, and it is the what if question. What if we actually trusted that God knew best? What if we actually leaned in in a new zealous, passionate way to following Christ. What if we honored the Ten Commandments? What would happen in that world? So last week I started and I said, look, the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments uh, have a bad reputation. They, they perhaps need to hire a PR firm because there's a lot of people that don't like them and they go, oh my goodness, we're reaching back 3,500 years to this archaic list of oppressive, heavy-handed rules, and I said, "No, that's that's fundamentally wrong." We have to understand, although we, we live in a time where the the belief is that there is no morality. Right we've got, we've got two big meta-narratives out there, those that subscribe to scientific secularism that say there is no morality, what you see is all you get." and then we've got this generic spirituality that, that actually sort of celebrates the idea that whoever you are, you need to be true to yourself. And while while there's almost no overlap between this this that focuses on supernatural and the spiritual and this that focuses exclusively on the natural, they intersect at this one level. They both agree that there are no rules other than be who you are. I said, although that's the big news out there, what we get from Scripture is the idea that there is a personal God who has revealed himself who loves you and who has given us a path forward? Who has given us the Word of God? It's, it is called by the psalmist a light into our path, a lamp into our feet. And the, the law of God, the moral law of God, is not a list of arbitrary rules, God's preferences that He sort of superimposes on us. They are things that grow out of His character. And they are things that shaped the world that he created. The, this is the way the world works. right? That's, that's what we get with the Ten Commandments. We don't so much break the Ten Commandments as we break ourselves when we violate the Ten Commandments. This is the way things actually unfold. And God loves us and so he has given us this path forward. So... Last week, I said that and said, okay, we're going to get get ready. We're going to jump in. We're going to take these one at a time over the course of the next 10 weeks. So two other quick things to know about the Ten Commandments generically. One of them I need to bring up because I hinted last week that not everybody who subscribes to the Ten Commandments actually can name the Ten Commandments, and so I had several of you... Uh, Call me or email me or assure me that you had gone back and you were memorizing the Ten Commandments. Great. Excited to hear that. Uh, So I just want to say, there's actually a little bit of a numbering dispute. So the Jews, Catholics, and Protestants all number the Ten Commandments differently. Now, the same Ten Commandments, same order, nothing changes, but there's a little bit of disagreement over sort of what points go with what points. And so it changes the order. So you might look at a list and say, well, that's not the Ten Commandments. I, it's all the same points. And no, don't hit the panic button. But I just want you to know now that you're dialing in that there's a, sometimes a little bit of a difference there. Uh, also, it's important to just remind you that when it, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, there is a grand positive behind every negative commandment, right? This is, this is information from God who loves us and is, is giving us helpful, good information. He's a loving God. He's demonstrated his love by going all in. He goes first. He sent his son. There is a grand positive and, and each week I'm going to be trying to highlight the grand positive behind the commandment. And I'm also going to not simply be looking in the book of Exodus. I'm going to look at a New Testament expression of that commandment because they appear in the Old Testament and Exodus and Deuteronomy, but then we get them again in the New Testament, but, but they don't, you might not have recognized them for what they are. Okay, so, um, having said both of those things, uh, I, want to, uh, I, I want us to, to just make a few observations out of the Exodus 20 passage. So it was read for you, but Exodus 21 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, uh, the first thing to understand here is, is that the first commandment needs to be first I'm not certain that the the rest of the order is as important so we've been emphasizing the fact that there is a there's two tablets the first tablet the first four commandments deal with the vertical relationship with God the second six commandments the second tablet they deal with our, our relationship with each other I think you could probably change not just the numbering, but the order on commandments seven through ten, and it wouldn't really matter. But it's clear that the first commandment needs to be first. Because this is this is grounding everything in God. Not every worldview grounds everything together, but the Christian faith says: look, it all starts with the fact that there is a God. He is God, He is in charge, He is the creator. Everything everywhere belongs to Him, and we have to understand everything. Everything matters to Him. It's not just your spiritual life, it's not just Sunday morning. The physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the financial, everything matters to God. And so we start with this first commandment that is I am God. God says, I am God. I brought you out of Egypt, I'm in charge, I am God. And, and we're going to see that I am God, I am in charge, play out in some ways that might be initially shocking. Now, you, you have to understand, this commandment is different. We can look at other ancient lists of rules. We can go to the Egyptian code of Ma'at. We could go to the Babylonian Hammurabi code. We could go to the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. We could go to a lot of different places and see a lot of different sets of rules. For the most part, the first rule everywhere else is don't kill anybody. Okay? But, but the Ten Commandments are different. Everything is going to be grounded in God. The, the, the second thing that is, that is unique about this is that no other commandment, no other list of rules will say there are no other gods. And that's what, in essence, this says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before my face. That's the literal translation of the Hebrew. It's not just in the pantheon of gods, I need to be number one. I don't care who's number two or you know number 600. I just need to be the first God. No, he says, no other gods in my presence. No other gods at all. That's the commandment. And this is... This makes the Jews unique, and it made them unpopular. And it made them unpopular for pretty obvious reasons. So the commands get given initially in Exodus, then they're sort of restated just before they're entering the promised land in Deuteronomy. And as they're entering the promised land, uh, after their 40 years of wandering in the the wilderness, they're they're reminded, okay, there are no other gods. So they're going to move into... The the promised land, Israel, Palestine, they're moving into that area. And so they will be now surrounded by the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and all these, all these people. And you can imagine how this unfolds, right? They move in and someone comes over from uh, across the valley with cinnamon rolls and says, Welcome, we've been here for 40 years, we sort of understand how it works, we brought these for you, how was your trip, where are you coming from, I mean all the stuff that you say. And, oh, see that you've got that kind of a car. That's new. I haven't seen that car before. I've got, a, I've got a, a car. If you ever need to borrow it, you can borrow it. So that kind of stuff is happening. And you can imagine how popular the Jews would be if they said, well, that's not a car. What you've got isn't a car. My car is better than your car, right? Okay, well, I'll take my cinnamon rolls back, and we'll go back across the valley. That's not a good start. And it's even, it's even a little bit more biting if we try and change the analogy and make it a little bit more accurate. They say, see that you have children. Our children go to this school. It's a good school. If you want us to, to, you know, to help you get signed up at school, if you want our kids to walk your kids to school, we'd be glad to do that. And the response from the Jews is, oh, that's not a school. That's bad. Your school is a fake school. We have the only real school. That's that's the message that is coming out from the Jews. Everybody else got together and said, okay, you got a God of war. You got a God of of thunder. You got a God of uh, of crop, uh, abundant crops. You got all these gods. Great, we got these gods. Let's just share our gods with each other. Everybody can have everybody else's God. No problem. And the Jews say, no, we have one God. There's only one God. Your gods are fake gods, and we're not interested in any of your fake gods. So... This was not popular then. (laughs) It's not popular today. Many of you have real frustrations with the kind of exclusive claims that God and Jesus make. And and that's that's part of the, there's there's a little bit of a hard edge to God unfolding the rules. But he is leading by saying, I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm going to tell you. What's up? The the idea that there are no other gods, the idea that you would say I'm not interested in your school or your car is very harsh and critical unless, of course, it's true. And then it's important information. Now, it needs to be delivered in a way that is loving and gracious and kind. But it is part of the edge that we get into. Okay. Okay. So, with with that out of Exodus, if you have a Bible, want to follow along with me, I'm going to read out of Romans chapter one, beginning with verse 18. This is a this is a classic text that explains uh, <clears throat> the question of false gods. So, Romans. So remember, Paul's letter to the Romans is the only letter that Paul writes, the only letter that we have in the Bible where someone is writing to someone they have never met before. So all the other letters he was sending to churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the letters he was sending to people, Timothy, Titus, whatever, these are people that he had relationships with. So there had already been a lot of discussion. The introductory kind of material has already been set out there. Not so with the Romans. So Paul backs all the way up in his letter to the Romans. It's a longer letter. It's a dense letter. But this is the introduction. And he says in verse 18, Romans 1 verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been, he has made. to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So I have four points today. The first one is you have a God. Whoever you are, You have a God. And some of you would say, Well, not me. I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist. No. What what Paul says in Romans chapter one is the option is the true God, or we exchange worship for with the true God for a false God, for a lie. Now, if you, if you want this in 20th century language as opposed to 1st century language, we can go with the 20th century theologian of great renown, Bob Dylan. you got to serve somebody. right? you got to serve somebody. Everybody has a God. So the question is not, do I have a God? The question is, who is the God that I worship? Is the God my God? Or do I have a different God? So the Bible never actually tells us to worship. It assumes it. What it tells us is that we are to worship God. (laughs) We're to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're to worship Jesus. it, It directs our worship because it understands that we are going to worship. And in fact, we are. We are wired to worship. We are wired to focus on, to celebrate, to, to comment on. We are moved by things. And so you hear people worshiping all the time. Now, it's, it doesn't sound like the Psalms, but, but it sounds like, did you see that game? That quarterback is amazing. Did you see her in that movie? She is, she is an incredible actress. I couldn't live without my cell phone. That car is the most amazing, beautiful machine created by me. Those are all examples of worship. To, To worship is to describe worth, to ascribe worth to something. That is beautiful. That is amazing. That is talented. All of those are worship statements. So we are wired to worship. John Calvin suggested that, that we shouldn't be called homo sapiens. We should be called homo religios because what makes us different from the animals is our proclivity to worship. We ascribe value. We say things are wonderful, beautiful. We, 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 we organize our life around something that we think is going to provide meaning and direction. So the question is not, are we going to worship? The question is, what are we going to worship? The question is not, do I have a God? The question is, is the God of my life the God of heaven? Number one, you have a God. Number two, this God shapes you. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important sort of determinative thing about you is what you think about God, whatever your God is. <laughs> because that God shapes you. You become like that God. This is, this is the language that Augustine is, is using when he talks about the need that we have To rightly order our loves. Because we become like the things that we love. And so the the need is to get our loves in the right order. Whatever is first, whatever we most want, whatever is providing meaning, that is going to shape us. The most important thing about us is what we think about God. And this is why the first commandment has to be the first commandment, because everything everything flows out of that. And so it's critical that we get the God question right. And by the way, this is why God tells us that we need to worship him. Now, I don't know, perhaps this has not occurred to you, but if you read through the Psalms, at some point, Some people have the same reaction that C.S. Lewis had, which is, wow, this seems very petty of God to tell me to worship him. I'm supposed to. I'm being instructed to say that he's wonderful. I'm being instructed to say that he's holy. I'm being instructed to say that he's mighty. Just imagine that I told you you need to tell me that I'm wonderful. Right? Right? Now, whether you would do it or not is sort of secondary to the point that it would make me, in your eyes, very small. Like, well, how desperate is that, that we're supposed to tell him that he's wonderful? So, the Psalms are filled with instructions to us to tell God that he's wonderful. So, please understand, God does not need our praise. He wants it. Right? It, 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 he, he, all the language that gets used about God and our relationship with God is, you know, the, the church is the bride of Christ and the, the, there's love and there's an intimacy and there's a connection and all those things, all those things suggest that God delights in our praise and in our relationship and in intimacy that grows with us. Like a father or a mother delights in fellowship and laughter and love with their children. But it's important to understand, God doesn't profit from our praise. Right? We're not propping him up. <laughs> so the commands to worship God are not ultimately for God's benefit. They're for our benefit. Right? The only way we're going to be completed, the only way life is going to work, the only way our world is going to be ordered in a way that, that carries us in a direction where we can find purpose and, and hope and grace and love is if we worship God. We were created to worship God. And the good news is the more we know about the God who is, the easier he is to worship. There's no shadow side here where we're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that. The more we see, the more amazing he becomes. And we are wired to be amazed. Right. In the presence of greatness, in the presence of beauty, in the presence of something amazing, we are amazed. And so God says, okay, you've got to look at me. You've got to focus on me because this is critical for you. We all have a God. The question is not whether we have a God. The question is whether or not the God we are focused on is the God who is. And whatever is in first place in our life, whoever our God is, is shaping us. Point number three, you may not know who your God is. You may not know who your God is. You probably know who you say your God is, but I have become increasingly aware that we are pretty bad observers of our own behavior. Like I've been in the room increasingly where I've, I've realized, where I, I just have become aware. Okay, everybody in this room knows what this guy's problem is, except this guy, which is a really uncomfortable discovery because the the immediate next discovery is, so what does everybody in this room get about me that I don't get? Like if it's possible for everybody else to see something clearly, but a person not to know it themselves, then what is it that I don't get about myself that everybody knows? So it's possible to not know who our God is. And and I would just to sort of flesh this out a little bit say that spiritual growth is the process of getting to know God more. And those of us that are married understand that getting to know somebody better can be a 40 plus year experiment. Sherry and I have been married over 30 years. There are still times when I'm like, really? Oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. Like, how did I miss that? So, so we may not even understand who we are worshiping or who that person is. And so We have to pursue God zealously because, here's another point, small deviations over time lead to big problems. Small deviations over time lead to big problems. So let me pause here for a second and say that it's not uncommon for me to have discussions with people and to have to point out to them that they're not actually seeking after God. What they're doing is trying to use God to get what is ultimately their God. So I remember a conversation with a woman who stuck around after one of our prayer meetings. And she said, I just, I just have to tell you, I'm finding God to be a deep disappointment. And I thought, okay, well, that's, I haven't heard it expressed that way, but obviously I said, okay, well, you're, you're processing something. Tell me more. She says, so you're telling me, you know, there's a God and I need to pursue this God. And so I've been coming to church and I've been reading the Bible and I've been praying and I've been serving and, and it's not working. Okay, so what, what exactly is not working? She goes, well, I'm still in debt. And, and I'm still frustrated in my marriage. And, you know, I still didn't get a promotion. I said, okay. So he said, let me just step back for a moment and, and reflect that the highest good in your life is not God. It's this vision of your life that you want. And you're not actually seeking God. You're trying to use God to get what you ultimately want. And my experience is God doesn't do that for very long because it's ultimately not in our best interest. You have to understand God is who God is. And he's not tame and we don't control him. And and we're not God. And for me, this this was almost a bigger discovery than my conversion. I, I've shared about coming to faith in Christ, and that I didn't. I don't know when it happened. I sort of know that there's a, one year I'm I'm not. I don't believe in God or in Christ, and a couple years later I do, and I, I know the things that I did during that path. But I I didn't have a moment a eureka experience, the Alleluia chorus, sea angels, any of that. I didn't I didn't get that. But I realized at some point I was I was settled in the conviction that Christ was Lord. I can, I can point far more specifically to times when I was suddenly waking up and saying, oh my goodness, right, I believe I have been acting like and thinking that God exists for my benefit. <laughs> and in fact, I exist for his. This is completely backwards, I've been thinking, if I'm good, if I go to church, if I don't don't use the name of the Lord in vain, if I do these things, God is obligated to help me win tennis matches and, you know, date the girl I want to date and all these things because that's the deal. No, that's not the deal. That's not it at all. That's God as some little puppet. And God is very clear. We'll see this more next week when we get to the second commandment. There's, there's overlap between the first and second commandments. It can be a little hard to actually sort of pull them apart. The second commandment is about idolatry. Principally, the first commandment is God needs to be God. And the second commandment is we need to worship God in the ways God wants to be worshipped. But one of the things that we see, and it's, it is found in the name of God. when he, He's got all these titles, but when he finally gives his name to Moses in Exodus 3... The, the name Yahweh, it is It is this weird Hebrew construct and basically the best we can do to translate it is I am who I am and not who you make me, right? Well, who am I? I will be who I will be. I am not your pawn. I am God, you're not. <laughs> and that's sort of the starting point. And so we may not know who our God is and and we are gonna have to understand that he is bigger and less tame than we expect and that leads to the final point we need to know the God who is we need to know God as he is we've got to pursue God the God who is and as he has revealed himself and that is the way forward and the good news is is that he wants to be known so some of you will say I worship the God of the Bible. Okay? Maybe. But we bring a lot of baggage to our conversion. We bring a lot of assumptions. And part of, part of growing in faith is, is setting aside our cultural assumptions, our, our prejudices, our biases, our hopes, and to say, who are you really, God? As you have revealed yourself in this book and revealed yourself in history. Who are you really? So the question I will leave you with as we start this series, a question for you in small groups along with a number of other questions. We've got lots of resources for this small group series, this series. Who did you worship this week? Not who do you say you worship, but what. What were you most excited about? What did you spend your time on? How did you spend your money? What did you talk about the most? What were you most anxious to tell somebody else about? If you woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, what was your first thought? Who did you worship this week? I'm pretty certain it wasn't some Egyptian wood carving, right? We, we, we don't have that problem, but small deviations from who God is are big over time, and, and we need to pursue God. What if we loved God first? What if our God was the God? What if we actually kept the first commandment? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. We thank you for who you are. We pray for greater clarity as to who you are. Help us to see you. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to peel back our prejudices and biases. Help us to understand that you are God and we are not. Help us to move down that path. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.